It's time for Radio Cows, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Wednesday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, we will share with you conversations with interesting Arkansans on primary sources, chewing the fat with Rex and Paul, interviews with some of your favorite musical artists on Arkansas Sounds, content from the Butler Center's collections, information about what's happening in the library system, and much, much more. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocals at cals.org. This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cals Communications and Public Relations Department. For more information about Radio Cals, including links to resources mentioned in our segments, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. Welcome to Primary Sources, a featured production of Radio Cows. Here on Primary Sources, we focus on people who are making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas. Some you might have heard of and some you haven't heard of, but probably want to know about. Check out cows.org podcasts for a free podcast of Primary Sources interviews. to a special edition of Primary Sources. I am Matt DeCampel, and today we are focusing on the 2017 Arkansas Literary Festival. We have interviews with authors from across the country, hence the cell phone nature of some of the voices you will hear, covering a very wide variety of topics from people who have had very wide experiences across the globe. Enjoy. Dominic Walliman has a PhD in quantum device physics, but now finds himself as a successful children's author. He explains how the convergence of science and children's books has made for a satisfying career. The obvious first question for me anyway is, you go to college, you go through all that schooling, you get your PhD in quantum device physics, and then suddenly you're a children's book author. So how, how, does, that, how does that journey happen? Well, I was doing the. I started writing the books um, just soon after I did my PhD, and then I was doing it concurrently with when I was working at D-Wave on quantum computing. And basically, the way it worked was um, a friend from school, Ben Newman, who's the illustrator of the books. He had been doing some art books with the publisher, and uh, they were doing this new imprint called Flying Eye Books, which focused solely on kids' books. And so they asked him if he wanted to do a book, and uh, he came up with the idea of doing a science book. And so he got me on board to do the writing for that, because I was always telling him about science when we were in school and telling him about how amazing the universe is and, and all the rest of it. <laughs> so that's how I got into it, yeah. And the experience of doing the books and the, the YouTube channel, uh, where you mm-hmm. are taking these very complex you know, theories and ideas and and putting them into a language for kids to consume. 
has it helped you over time better explain what you know and what you do to the to the public in general? Absolutely, yeah. So I've always enjoyed explaining science, uh, and I think I've always been fairly good at it. I don't quite know why. I think it's because the hardest thing is to imagine what it's like. Once you know something, the hardest thing is to imagine what it's like to not know that thing, and then then say the things that you'd need to know, um, you know, fill in the gaps. Yeah. And so that takes a bit of imagination. So, I mean, for some reason, I've always enjoyed uh, telling people science just because I think it's incredible and and so I want to convey that to other people so that they find it incredible too. Uh, and then just over the years with all the practice, I think I've just got better and better at it. But there's always room to improve. There's still things I assume knowledge all the time when I'm explaining things. And so, yeah, it's a skill that it just takes practice, really. When did you find out or when did it hit you that this was going to become more than just kind of a one project and then move on to what's next, that this was going to have some legs to it? Ooh, I think it was a fairly gradual process. Um, we didn't know how well the first book was going to do. Obviously, we wanted it to do well. And we we really wanted to make a very high-quality product. The motivation for that was Ben used to work in a bookshop, and he always felt a bit sad about showing um, parents the kids' nonfiction section because he felt like the books there weren't quite that inspirational um, compared to the kinds of things we were reading when we were kids. And so once we did the first book and it was a success and we got offered to make a second one, we jumped at the chance to do that. And then that was a physics book, which is, I think, a hard one to do. (laughs) I can imagine. And since then, it's kind of gained momentum. Uh, I just really enjoy it. Cora Daniels co-authored the book called Impolite Conversations on race, politics, sex, money, and religion in 2014. And in the time just since that book has been published, she's seen the discussions and the conversations change across America. To start, it's been uh, almost three years now since this book came out, correct? Yeah. So how have you seen uh, conversations, whether it's in the public discourse or just interpersonal, how have you seen that uh, change since, uh, you know, you first came up with the idea of uh, of needing to get this this format and this book out there? <laughs> well, we're definitely um, we're definitely in a, a different era or, or, or moment in time. Um, and it's funny because, you know, my co-author and I, we've been uh, John Jackson, you know, we've talked about that. Like if we if the book came out now, would we change anything? given the the different moment that we're in. And I think I actually wouldn't change anything. I think that our, our call for um, uh, an honest discourse, which is what we really wanted in impolite conversations, um, is is even more necessary now. I think I, I think at the moment we kind of feel like we're we're in this moment of of sort of unabashed brute honesty yeah um but uh the the other part of the title the conversation part is actually just as important and a conversation requires listening and a a two-way dialogue um and you know i i think that part actually 
it, it, that hasn't changed. So, you know, we wanted people to get sort of in an uncomfortable space and, and, and talk about um, uh, things with more honesty and talk about things that are, that are difficult, um, but, but do it with respect. Um, and, and just because we're in getting into that impolite zone um, by actually talking about things that we think maybe we shouldn't be talking about doesn't mean that we, we can't do it with, with respect. Because, yeah, and to your point, it, it does feel like you used the term brutal honesty a minute ago. It, it feels like that there's been more of the brutal, but the honesty may or may not be catching up yet. Right. So, um, so yeah, I think that, that maybe people are, I think it's, I, in terms of back to your original question of like how things have changed, I think maybe folks are a little more warmed up to it. I think when, you know, when we first came out, people kind of were looking at us like out of left field, like, what? What are you talking about? So I think, I think folks now um, are, um, I think there's more folks now who are sort of like on that page, but I think we're still at that same point. We sort of haven't gotten there yet. Um, but there, I think there is sort of this, this, idea that that yeah we should be talking about we should be talking <laughs> right well and if if only then you could go oh just wait and see <laughs> we're gonna be so relevant <laughs> so soon <laughs> hussein hussein was born and raised in iraq and now is retired and lives in little rock however the life he has led in the meantime has been extraordinary after serving more than 15 years of forced servitude in Saddam Hussein's army, he has written a fictional book that is still steeped in the history of his own life. So the way that things have developed in the Middle East in recent years, that inspired you to revisit some of what you talked about in your autobiography, but this time from a, a fictional perspective, even though there's a lot of, of reality in there. Right, exactly. Uh, it, is, it is, as I said, opportunity to me uh, to indicate to the Iraqis that um, although I'm um, Iraqi-American, but I still have my homeland, which I have appreciated very much, you know, the, my childhood, my family, my tribe and everything. And I try to indicate to them that I'm doing something for them, you know, to let the world know what's going on about, you know, what's been going uh, on there, you know. So it is, to me, you know, some kind of uh, debt, you know, I can, you know, pay the, you know, back, that's all. And obviously a lot of American readers and consumers in general, their their views of, I, of Iraq have come mostly through the military engagements there and and, see, and, and from the Americans that have gone over there uh, with, with the military. But obviously there's a lot of, a lot of culture that most people don't know about. There's a lot of, a lot of history that a exactly. lot of people don't, I mean, you know, you name the book Euphrates Dance. I mean, uh, exactly. it's the cradle of civilization. So is that uh, along with understanding kind of some of what your experience is, you are, it feels like you're trying to bring a, a fuller understanding of of the Middle East and, and particularly your homeland. Exactly. Uh, Euphrates Dance is an attempt for me to <clears throat> to reveal, you know, the uh, the cultures and uh, the culture and the, the traditions of my homeland. The uh, uh, the attitudes, the society interactions, 
the superstitions, uh, the way it was going on, which is uh, I consider it as uh, an uh, 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 stark contrast to the uh, what is going on for the United States, you know. So this is uh, some uh, kind of attempt. I'm doing it, you know, in order for making some reality uh, of my homeland uh, could be understand and could be appreciated by the uh, U.S. Uh, fellow Americans and, and the entire uh, Western world. What are your fondest memories of, of growing up and starting a life in Iraq? I have very beautiful childhood. I had that, you know, that memories, and I wish, you know, if you, uh, my second uh, book would be published soon, so we can, the uh, friends and you know, other readers, you know, could find out how happy I was with my childhood. It was, you know, the innocent life. Uh, Iraq is a very small community uh, comparison to the United States. And uh, in Iraq, as a, a nation, is also a nation and everything. But you could have, you know, a relationship with other people, not necessarily with where you live in or your city or your uh, province, but you, you can have many other friends in Iraq, in Baghdad, in Mosul, in other states. So it is a small community encourage you uh, to, to do uh, uh, some kind of, of uh, uh, research or research and 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 to uh, and 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 to uh, consolidate that when you know when I grow up and become a professor working in the University of Baghdad and then University of uh, Tikrit uh, that made you know more experience to me the the uh, correlation between you know the uh, my uh, city as a southern part with the northern part and the relationship that all the people grew up uh, not necessarily to be in the same religion or the same uh, belief or anything but this there are basic things that everybody uh, cling to it and wouldn't leave it you know so this is something I really appreciate it it is, you know, United States, you know, it's a beautiful, a great, uh, you know, nation. But, you know, the life is here faster and, and uh, huge. And, and so it is, uh, the person cannot, uh, whatever he tried to do to apply his own experience. You know, the experience could be as, as a point, you know, in, in, in a huge world, you know. So this is amazing, too. I love the United States, but I still have, you know, some kind of uh, missing, you know, my family and everything. This is KABF in Little Rock, 88.3, the voice of the people in central Arkansas. Authors galore. The Central Arkansas Library System's 14th annual Arkansas Literary Festival takes place at Cal's downtown campus this weekend, April 27th through the 30th, and admission is free. Arkansas's premier gathering of readers and writers features best-selling and emerging authors from across the nation. The public can attend sessions, panels, workshops, activities, performances, special events, and social gatherings. For more information about the Arkansas Literary Festival, you can visit www.arkansasliteraryfestival.org, email litfest at cals.org, 
or simply call us at 501-918-3098. Welcome to part two of a special edition of Primary Sources. I am Matt DeCampel, and we are talking with authors featured at the 2017 Arkansas Literary Festival. The collection of interviews continues again from across the country and often via cell phones. Teresa O'Neill has written a book called Unmentionable, The Victorian Lady's Guide to Sex, Marriage, and Manners. It is a book about the things that women had to deal with on a daily basis in Victorian England, but that everyone was very hesitant to talk about. So here's my first question that developed as I was researching uh, on Amazon some about your book. I noticed that it ranks higher in sales as an etiquette book than it does as a history book. And does that does that surprise you at all, or, or is that some of what you hoped to see from this book? I was fortunate enough that it was published by Little Brown. Little Brown is one of the big big six. Oh, yeah. yeah. Any publishing company you've actually heard of, like Simon & Schuster or whatever, and Random House, they're the big ones, and and they're withstanding this change in um, publishing that Amazon's brought on. Mm-hmm. The thing is, when they tell you to do something, you don't. Well, I did not know this. <laughs> they said, "Teresa, we need to put your book in etiquette." I said, "Etiquette? Nobody reads etiquette. It's a humor history book. I want to be in humor. I want to be with Tina Fey." <laughs> and my <laughs> agent, like, kind of leans across. You know, her job is to advocate for me as politely as possible. Right. And she's like, great, Teresa. <laughs> she's like, I think you're a genius, Teresa, but I do think Little Brown might know a little bit more about selling books than you do. There you go. <laughs> and I'm like, touche. Yeah. So they purposely put it in etiquette because they knew very well it wouldn't get any exposure if it was placed up against uh, humor or history because those are written by celebrities and uh, far-established uh, people like Bill Bryson and Mary Roach. So, so that's why it's there. Yeah. It's not really an etiquette book at all. Well, I mean, if you happen to be time-traveling to the 19th century and you need to learn how to properly poop, yeah, it's an etiquette book. Elon Musk will buy a copy once he figures out time travel, and then he can go from there. <laughs> <laughs> what The obvious question, what got you so interested in this topic in this time period? I'm not a pervert. <laughs> no, no, all right. Not, not implied. Guy, not maybe, implied. It's there. I hear it. Most women, I think, who love uh, historical romances, historical uh, period dramas, stuff like that, even Little House in the Prairie. Uh, at some point, you're going to be watching Scarlett O'Hara be running across the terror with this gigantic crinoline skirt, you know, that's seven feet in diameter, and it'll occur to you, wait, they didn't have bathrooms. How did she fit that thing into an outhouse? <laughs> and that will open a door, like dominoes falling. Like, what, how did they do this? And then you find out that back in the day, until the 20th century, underwear didn't have any crotches for ladies. There was none. They were called open drawers, which had a practical reason, which you'd find in the book. But if that's true, how did they handle their monthly unwellness, as they called it? And all these questions just And the thing was... I couldn't find the answers. Even with the entirety of the internet at my disposal, they weren't there because nobody wrote them down. They were women's issues, and they were very private. And I've read scores of women's diaries. 
they don't talk about, they always record what the weather is that day, but they never say, I used uh, woolly sheep's lamb and, and lard to uh, control my menstrual flow. So then how, <laughs> how did you find it then? I mean, did, did you finally find some women oh. who did write about it? Well, um, my biggest resource, his name is Harry Finley, and he's like a 70-something-year-old straight guy who has, for some reason, he is my eldest, for some reason, he has a museum of menstruation in his basement. Ah. And, <laughs> yes, it's awesome. Um, and he is, when people found out he existed, because he there's nobody like him, right? they send him stuff. They send him first uh, primary sources, which are really hard to find. They sent him, this is my grandmother's uh, 200-year-old crocheted Norwegian menstrual holder, menstrual rag holder. This is, this is this belt from this time. This is how we did this. And he was the source of information. And I was kind of drunk off a NyQuil nap one day, and I wrote him, and I said, you're my Elvis, and I love you, and can I have some of your images, please, even though I can't afford to pay for them? And he's like, oh, heavens. <laughs> And he let me have them, so I learned a lot from him. The second place, honestly, catalogs. When oh, um, yeah. you know the West, when when the America was getting settled, Sears and Roebuck were the only way really to buy. And Montgomery Wards were the only way to buy things out here in the West because mm-hmm. once the train systems got put in. And if you go into the catalogs, they sell all this intimate stuff quietly, tucked away, but there's detailed pictures and information and. It all starts to fit together. It's really cool. So that's my primary source of information. So you're uh, you're just ripping back the curtain on everyone's romanticized version of uh, Victorian times, and 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 realizing that these were still people with with regular needs of regular people. I had to find out, you know, it's just it's just because it seemed so impossible that they could live that life. Hi, my name is Amy Bradley Hull. I'm here with the Arkansas Literary Festival, and I am here today with author Celia Anderson. Celia is a really, really interesting lady. She's a native of Little Rock, but she's traveled all over the world, and she wears many hats. She's an athlete. She's a motivational speaker. Of course, she's an author. I mentioned that she writes books. She's written all different kinds of books, and she's also a mother, among other things. She's both a fiction and nonfiction writer, and her works appeal to a variety of readers. Her latest book is 100 Things to Do in Little Rock Before You Die, and it's a sort of bucket list for Little Rock. It's like a love letter to the city, and it, it, it's got a really um, interesting presentation of all the intriguing and surprising things that there are to do in Little Rock. And so, Celia, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, no problem. Anytime, actually. Well, um, I want to start off with something that many people might not know about you. They might not know that you're a former basketball player. So tell me, where did you play? <laughs> yeah, you know, I started, of course, right here in Little Rock at Dunbar Junior High School. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I ever touched a basketball. But I guess when you walk into a school and you're 5'10", 180 pounds, and you're 13 <laughs> years old, they don't really give you much choice. And so I played at Dunbar, and then I went on to Hall. We won the very first women's um, championship state championship at Hall High mm-hmm. School 
and then I played for the Razorbacks all four years. And then when I was done at Arkansas, I played overseas in Europe for two seasons. Oh, cool. Like, I think I read that you were in Greece. Is that right? Yeah, I was in Greece. How was that? It was great. You know, I don't know if it was the basketball or the guy I was dating. Either way, I had a good time. <laughs> you had a good, yeah, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> so I know that motivating and inspiring students is a really big passion of yours. So tell me a little bit about the work that you do with kids in schools. You know, it's really kind of amazing. When I first wrote my two fiction novels, people would always invite me to schools and they wanted me to speak, you know, to their book clubs or to, you know, their their writing prompts. And and so I would go in and I would be able to touch those students. But while I was there, I was realizing that that population was a very small population of, mm-hmm. of the school. So I decided to come up with a presentation that would appeal to the entire um, student body. So I have a presentation that's called Game Time, mm-hmm. and it's an acronym for gaining a meaningful education to ensure maximum elevation. Mm-hmm. And it motivates kids to kind of get into the game of life. Because I think we always have this debate in, in schools about whether the problem is the parents, or whether the problem is the teacher, or the problem is the administrators. But we never, ever, ever, ever look to our children and say, you have some personal responsibility. You have to participate in your own rescue. And so that's what game time is about. It's about telling kids, look, there are three things that I think in life that will hinder success, three things that I think will ensure success. And if you start right now paying attention to what is going on with you, Mm-hmm. Even in the seventh, eighth, ninth grade, then you have a better chance of surviving. Yeah, I, heck, I think that's a message that even adults could gain from. <laughs> I think it's a fantastic book for people who are coming to visit Little Rock because, of course, um, you know, Little Rock is surprisingly cosmopolitan. There's a lot to do here. There's so much to see, um, and I think people are are very surprised about all of the things they can do here, but I think it's a fantastic book for locals also. I mean, I think locals will want to get this book. I was flipping through it. I was like, I I never even thought about that. You know, different things in there that I either didn't know about or had kind of forgotten about. So, I mean, I think it's a fantastic book for everyone to um, to browse through. So I'm going to make you uh, make a difficult decision, though, right now. (laughs) Out of those 100 things to do in Little Rock before you die, you have to pick just one to do tell me which one which one main thing you would pick you know I would just encourage people to get out and and to enjoy everything Mm -hmm. the city has to offer I mean we have the wish you were here postcards Mm -hmm. that are down by Junction Bridge you have the big dam bridge you have the bike trails I mean there's so many things that you can do in the city that you don't have to pay a dime to do you know you can go to um, a lot of the museums are free, you know, so they're, they're just, and even the rep has that pay what you can night, right. you know, so there are just so many things that you can do that doesn't cost you a lot. So if I had to tell you the one thing to do in Little Rock, it would be to get out and enjoy the city. Mm-hmm. Well, Celia Anderson, I think you are a fantastic ambassador for Little Rock for sure. You're a fantastic ambassador for Arkansas authors and also for the Literary Festival and the library system. So we thank, thank you, you so much for the work that you've done and thank you for being here with us today. All right. No problem. Thank you for having me. Authors galore. The Central Arkansas Library System's 14th annual Arkansas Literary Festival takes place at Cal's downtown campus this weekend. 
April 27th through the 30th, and admission is free. Arkansas's premier gathering of readers and writers features best-selling and emerging authors from across the nation. The public can attend sessions, panels, workshops, activities, performances, special events, and social gatherings. For more information about the Arkansas Literary Festival, you can visit www.arkansasliteraryfestival.org, email litfest at cals.org, or simply call us at 501-918-3098. Radio Cows is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System and its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, please visit cows.org and butlercenter.org. Our producer is Glenn Whaley, and our production manager is Brett Ratliff. Voices by Jasmine Job and John Miller. Engineering and editing by Brett Ratliff, Michael Stotts, and Anna Lancaster. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 Little Rock.